0: Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome, listeners, to the kickoff of our Indiana Jones Retrospective Series. Today we are discussing Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is your co-host, Corbin.
1: I'm Alan from Chicago, and literally for years I always referred to this movie as indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark that's oh, yes. not true i that's did not too. true it's actually just raiders of the lost ark i thought for years when i was a kid that's
0: what it was called and i was so wrong i felt i did the exact same thing i always thought of this as indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark because that is how the three sequels are titled and i thought it only made sense to call this movie as such but alas that's not true but anyways i I'm really excited to kick off this series because these movies are so well-renowned. They are so much fun. I'm so excited to take a look at them in depth and discuss these classics that most people, well, most people love some of them.
1: Right. I know Raiders of the Lost Ark is considered to be on a lot of well not a lot of lists to be one of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh so this one gets most of the regards and I've heard that between who you talk to it's either this one or the last crusade that is considered the best one. Uh 2 and 4 well I mean we'll we'll get to those soon but those have some uh from what I've heard they aren't nearly as regarded
0: as at least 1 and 3 are. And I am not a newbie to this franchise. I have seen all of the movies at least once. I have seen, honestly, I've seen the fourth one probably at least five times. And uh, (laughs) I yes, I have seen two and three probably once, and I've seen Raiders of the Lost Dark. Well, probably as much as the fourth one, but maybe not. Maybe just by a hair, though, because for a time there, all I owned was the fourth one as a digibook on Blu-ray. And I didn't own the original trilogy until probably uh, maybe last Christmas or the Christmas before. So I, I own them all now. And I, yes, so I've watched them through. Alan, I believe you're not a newbie to this either.
1: Yes. uh, I have a very interesting relationship with Indiana Jones. I've Mm, seen the first one a ton. I I wouldn't be surprised if it's pretty close to double digits. Uh, Mm. However, I've only seen the fourth one once, and I've seen Mm. the third one once. I have seen pieces of Temple of Doom. But haven't mm. sat through the whole thing all the way through. So I see it like on pieces, like on TV and stuff. And I remember hardly anything from The Last Crusade. I think you and I watched it with a group of people during. It was some oh, mission trip, yeah. and that's that was the only time I've ever watched that that Last Crusade. I haven't gone back yet. Oh, uh, that's right. And I was like falling asleep, so I remember bits and pieces, but I couldn't tell you the whole story if I if I tried. So I can. Relatively say that I've seen one and four all the way through to completion at least once. Uh, three is three is shaky and I can't even give you two.
0: Yes, I, uh, yeah, two I just saw quite recently, probably within the last year and a half. I would say I saw that for the first time. Uh, we'll talk more about it when we get to two, but the Indiana Jones series was kind of a uh, contentious for me growing up because of some scary images that my parents didn't think I should see as a younger kid. Cause they knew I was prone to nightmares. If Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island did it for me, no way uh, they were going to yes. let me watch Indiana Jones far too graphic for her a youngster like me, but right. I completely forgot. We we did watch uh, The Last Crusade together. I fell asleep probably like 10 or 15 minutes into the movie and missed the whole thing. So yeah. <laughs> I don't I remember was, I was
1: shocked that I made it through the whole thing without quote unquote falling asleep, although I doze off a couple of times. I try to keep myself awake. Just a little fun fact, going back to, as you were saying, some of the things in Temple of Doom, uh, that one, I think we talked about this in, the, in a past podcast, that was one of the movies that kind of pushed to have the PG-13 rating be made and released. Oh, yes. Is that in one other movie? I, f- I forget what it was, uh, but yes, those. that was one of the movies that pushed for that rating to be made for, as you were just saying, there are some images in there apparently that are not so pg
0: yeah and i would even say the same with this one probably the very end some of the imagery i was like that is really testing well i would say honestly probably going beyond the pg i know there's no such thing as pg-13 uh we'll talk about it a little bit more but yeah this movie is a hard pg yeah hard
1: if this was released today we'd probably get it pg-13 yeah the one saving grace that saved this movie from being an r was with uh belloc's head when it explodes yes they show that the mpaa and the mpaa goes uh no that gets an r and so they put fire in front of him and then
0: Uh, ah that's well okay that's exactly what i was talking about when i was watching it i that whole scene right there i was like I'm re- I'm honestly surprised this didn't get an R, and they didn't have to cut anything down, but apparently they did. They didn't really cut it down. They just kind of overlaid some visual effects to probably decrease the impact of maybe the gore or violence. But, right. Yeah, I was right. like, this could easily probably be an R for 1981.
1: Yeah, it almost got that, but I mean, like you were saying, <laughs> we were just talking about, this would have been a PG-13 had it been released today. Easily, I would
0: say. I I guess, spoiler alert, uh, Belloc's head explodes. (laughs) Yes.
1: I mean, uh, this is one of those movies that is just so classic. I would be surprised if somebody didn't already know that.
0: How long ago was it since this came? 81? Uh, So,
1: 27 years?
0: No, it has got to be more, I think. 37.
1: Ah, I was 10 off. 37.
0: Yes, yeah, 37 years since Raiders of the Lost Ark. Came out June 12th, 1981, summer blockbuster movie, of course, from Steven Spielberg, but honestly, a lot of the brainchild of George Lucas.
1: Yeah, this is not the first time that Lucas and Spielberg would team up and do a film together. This happens quite a few times, actually, especially in the 80s and 90s.
0: Yeah, they were a bit of a dynamic duo. Uh, they were always kind of producing on each other's films, it seems like. um, I know... Well, no, I, I won't bring it up because I guess I don't know for sure. <laughs> well, this movie is written by Lawrence Kasdan. Pretty hey. famous name. He, we just uh, talked
1: about him with uh, Solo, didn't we?
0: Yes. Uh, Kasdan did do the pretty much the original script for solo but more famously he wrote episode 5 star wars the empire strikes back the most probably the most beloved star wars film i know that's uh debatable but he also did work on and wrote the force awakens episode 7 so he has been extremely influential in crafting star wars it only makes sense Lucas had the relationship with them, and it makes sense Spielberg had the relationship as well. Right. But also, story credit goes to Philip Philip Kaufman, and it should be noted Philip Kaufman gave George Lucas the idea for the Ark of the Covenant being the kind of plot device for this movie. Right. Basically, he uh, he gave him the MacGuffin. Yes. Uh,
1: yeah it's it's all it's interesting too because Spielberg got the job. Wow, they are both on vacation <laughs> he was lucas was on vacation for star wars and uh spielberg was on vacation after doing uh close encounters of the third kind and they were yes. talking and then that's basically how spielberg got the job of directing this movie i just find that funny
0: it, it is funny and the idea for this movie came about much earlier than 81 at Uh, Lucas kind of wrote out a story in 1973 called The Adventures of Indiana Smith. right? And Spielberg had always wanted to make a James Bond film. And Lucas told him, I have a character that's better than James Bond. And James Bond is, and was at the time, an icon. He has probably had the longest running film franchise with the most movies.
1: Yeah, I think that's between... James Bond and Godzilla, or something like that. It's, oh, they're close, yeah, but, apparently.
0: That's that's odd, but that does make sense. You're probably right. Yeah. And I gotta say, Spielberg would probably do an incredible James Bond movie because uh, listeners, I've been going through watching all of the James Bond movies. I'm almost done. Uh, a little sneak peek. Most of them are garbage. <laughs> <movies>. <laughs> From what I hear, they have not aged very well. Oh dear, they're they're horrendous but Spielberg thought of this movie as being a Bond-esque movie but without the hardware and uh, apparently the name Indiana came from Lucas's Alaskan Malamute uh, which also served as the inspiration for Chewbacca did did you hear that as well
1: I did this I mean of course this has a lot of ties to Star Wars but the 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 creation of how this all kind of got started I it's kind of just a funny story just all the way around. It how Anita Jones's name came from the same person, same inspiration of Chewbacca, Spielberg got the job over vacation when with George Lucas there. It's just all around just kind of funny to me.
0: And it's also interesting because I believe the teaser trailer says first there was Jaws, then there was Star Wars, now Raiders of the Lost Ark. So they're kind of selling this as Spielberg meets George Lucas. So all of Spielberg's wonderful charm and uh, creativity and fantasy meets George Lucas's uh, creativity as well. And we're getting (laughs) this kind of uh, brainchild of them coming together. So I, I, I never really knew that George Lucas was this heavily involved in the creation of Indiana Jones.
1: Yeah, I always knew that he would had a pretty big hand in it, uh, be because I've always heard the pairing of Star Wars and and uh, Indiana Jones always fall in line with one with one another, not just John Williams, but like for multiple reasons. So I kind of always had I kind of always had the knowledge that both George Lucas and uh, Spielberg were big hands in this project whether or not they directed it or not. I mean, Lucas has his hands in a lot of projects that he doesn't direct, but still.
0: It's also interesting because there is kind of a fourth player in the mix here that doesn't get talked about very much, and that is Frank Marshall, who was the producer of this movie. And this movie was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and it was nominated for Best Picture of the Year, and the Oscar, if the movie did win, it wouldn't have gone to Spielberg. It wouldn't have gone to Lucas. The Oscar for Best Picture would have gone to Frank Marshall. Now, Frank Marshall has been nominated for five Academy Awards, including The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Seabiscuit, The Sixth Sense, The Color Purple, and, of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he has produced some really big-name films, and that's just a sampling Uh, From what I understand, he just produced Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom. So he's been producing big budget movies for a long time. Uh, I just found that fascinating. If this movie would have won Best Picture, it wouldn't have gone to Spielberg or or Lucas. It would have gone to Frank Marshall. Right. Yeah,
1: that is is interesting. I mean, it's also kind of cool that he's had his hand in so many projects that have become renowned as classics or... Best Picture nominees, things like that. Yeah. That seems like a guy... Well... I was going to say he seems like a guy who picks really good movies, but Fallen Kingdom just came out, and well, anyways.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, something else that should be noted is, I feel like Spielberg was kind of conned into making this movie, because Lucas... Spielberg was very reluctant to sign on to a trilogy because Spielberg usually doesn't make sequels to his movies very often. He usually makes just solo movies. And because he doesn't want to be tied down because that would be – signing on to like a three-picture deal would be at least a decade's worth of work or potentially more. Right. Lucas said, well, I've already got the scripts for two sequels finished, so it really wouldn't be that much work. We could just kind of roll right into those next movies and come to find out Lucas was a fibber and he did not have those scripts written, so it turned out to be a much Longer and kind of a bigger process than Lucas originally told his good pal Spielberg.
1: I really wonder what Spielberg thought about that. I don't know if there's anything on record, but I really do wonder what his true thoughts were on that being kind of half conned into making a trilogy. Ends up being quadrilogy of Indiana Jones films. Turns out that uh, Lucas doesn't actually have those written out at all.
0: Just the first one. And possibly it may be a, what do you, what do you call it, a pentology? I'm pretty yeah. sure we're getting Indiana Jones 5 not too long. Maybe well, I heard it was pushed
1: two? back a little bit for production stuff, but eventually we're supposed to get a fifth one.
0: Yeah, we will get to that, talking about that in a couple episodes. Yeah. Uh, so something else I found was apparently the Uncle Scrooge comics inspired... The uh, boulder chase scene in the just kind of the whole opening scene. I don't know anything about the Uncle Scrooge comics. Have you ever seen
1: of... uh, DuckTales?
0: Is that what it is?
1: Yes. That's like those are the show was based off of those comics. Oh, That's wow. what it is. They're a different name.
0: It really sounded like with some of the kind of action sequences or adventure sequences, Lucas and Spielberg were trying to draw from maybe things from their childhood or maybe even slightly before their time of kind of action adventure uh, movie serials or TV serials or even comic book serials, it sounds like. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you've ever seen DuckTales, I actually haven't seen DuckTales, but I know enough about it uh, to know that basically this, at least this is opening scene and kind of like this whole movie is basically an inspiration because Uncle Scrooge and... DuckTales kind of do the same thing. Uh, They go on adventures with their uncle, Mr. Uncle Scrooge, aptly Mm. named. And so similar things happen like they do in this movie.
0: I was very intrigued to find out not many years ago that the look of Indiana Jones isn't exactly original. Uh, Charlton Heston, who played the character Harry Steele in a 1954 movie called Secret of the Incas, which I have seen because it was free on... Amazon Prime Video for a time. Hey. Yeah, if you look at Charlton Heston's character and then you look at Indiana Jones' character, they look almost identical with their hats and their uh, jackets and everything. So the costume and production design people uh, kind of looked at that little-known movie. Honestly, I don't think it's very well-known. I had never heard of it until... Like I said a few years ago and I went ahead and watched it and it's it's pretty fun, so I definitely recommend if you have the means trying to find that movie and watch it, at least look up a picture of Charlton Heston Harry Steele, so you can see where the inspiration for Indiana Jones look came from.
1: Yeah, I I did know that Indiana Jones's character design was heavily based off of something. I just couldn't remember the name of it, but now I remember that you told that you had mentioned it.
0: And originally, this movie had a pretty hard time getting picked up by Hollywood Studios because of the price tag. The movie has a budget of 18, about 18 million dollars. At the time, that's nothing to snub your nose at. Today, that's really not very much. right? But a movie, eh, I think the studios just needed a better reason to invest their money on this brand new invented property. I mean, you think they would be able to do whatever they want after Jaws and Star Wars and uh, a number of other movies that they had done, but I guess they weren't. But Paramount Pictures did pick it up. And uh, in 1999, only 18 years after the initial release, Raiders of the Lost Ark was included in the U.S. Library of Congress's National Film Registry as culturally historical. Or aesthetically significant, um, which I found to be very fascinating right. that it was placed in there that quickly.
1: Right. I mean, I guess it kind of felt like a risky move. Although, yeah, as you said, after Star Wars and after Jaws and everything else and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you would assume that anybody who's known about either of these directors would just pick them up automatically if they came to them with any kind of idea. Uh, perhaps at the time they weren't nearly as popular as they were as they are now. But yes, it, as you were saying, it, it did take a little bit for this movie to get started. No company wanted to pick him up because it did cost some a pretty penny to make this movie, apparently.
0: Well, Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course stars the very famous and iconic Harrison Ford as the Indiana Jones character. Also starring alongside him is Karen Allen. Paul Freeman, John Rhys-Davies, Gimli from The Lord of the Rings. Hey. (laughs) He is not that short uh, in (laughs) life, apparently. Uh, Denholm Elliott, Ronald Lacey, Wolf Caller, and Alfred Molina? Yes. Alfred Molina.
1: Doc Ock.
0: I was uh, surprised to see him... In there, I had forgotten he played this very small part at the beginning, and he would go on to do much bigger things with his career. And at least the most notable one I know of is we just mentioned it, uh, Doc Ock in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man Two. Right.
1: Yeah, I actually didn't find out about that he was in this movie until pretty recently. Uh, I found out that Alfred millie was in this. I think it might have been when I watched it last. It was about actually about a year ago, about this time. I watched it with my parents when we were on vacation, and I saw that Alfred Molina was in this movie, at least in the opening. I was like, "What?" So yeah.
0: (laughs) Also, of course, this is scored by John Williams, who pretty much does everything Spielberg and mostly everything Lucas. It's an iconic score with iconic themes. That I mean, you just start playing it, and even if people haven't seen the Indiana Jones films, they will know. What this is from?
1: Yeah, this is pretty similar to the Star Wars theme. Where you hear it, you even if you haven't seen the movies, you probably know where it came from. This is kind of the same thing. Uh, it's John Williams. He, the guy, especially in the '80s, is very iconic with his scores and with his compositions and stuff like that. He just knew how to make great themes to things, and I would even say, still now, he does a pretty good job. Although now he's just kind of been given a lot of uh, rework, just kind of doing the same thing over again.
0: I also should mention that the director of photography is Douglas Slocum, who had been working since 1940, and his final film was The Last Crusade, which is kind of fitting. He did all three Indiana Jones films. Uh, He did do some famous stuff. He did the original Italian job movie, uh, The Great Gatsby with uh, Robert Redford, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, a remake of Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes, The Lion in Winter, and Julia. Those aren't wildly popular or well, probably well-recognized titles. Um, I did recognize uh, pretty much all of them, but I did think he was uh, an interesting choice for director of photography, and uh, he might have been nominated for some Academy Awards. I don't think I... Uh, look too close into that i don't really know if he worked on any other spielberg movies aside from just these three but he sounded like a pretty neat guy
1: yeah i know i've definitely heard of all the movies that that you've listed off although i don't think i've seen any of them uh by the way yes he did get a nomination for best cinematography but he did not get the the oscar it went to somebody else uh Mm. but yes
0: makes sense this film holds an 8.5 on IMDb. Whoa.
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's, there's a reason why it's solidly in the middle of the top 250.
0: Oh, yeah. It is on IMDb's top 250 movies. It sits at number 44. Yeah. So there's
1: a reason. Uh, this and then also being in the Library of Congress... Being on plenty of lists of like top 100 films of all time, there's a reason why this is regarded as
0: one of the classics. Oh, yeah. So according to pretty much everybody, this is the 44th greatest film of all time. (laughs) That's (laughs) pretty, pretty great achievement, I would say. Well, the budget for this movie as I said was 18 million and I'm sure Paramount is super glad they invested in this movie because domestically it grossed 212 million and it was reissued into theaters twice so it has a lifetime domestic gross of 248 million, a foreign gross of 141.7 million. For a worldwide total of 389.9 million dollars on an 18 million dollar budget
1: And now those are numbers that we usually see today for a pretty successful Hollywood movie. This mm-hmm. is back in 1981, so these numbers have obviously got up compared to and because of inflation and compared to what we view as money now. very impressive.
0: Oh, absolutely. And of course, opening weekend, it was number one, with 8.3 million. It was in 1,078 theaters, which was its widest release, which is interesting because that's only about 25%, only a quarter of what constitutes a wide release today.
1: Right. And of course, back then, there weren't nearly as many theaters as there are now. But yeah, got a really, really successful uh, theatrical run.
0: And without inflation, this is the second highest grossing after Crystal Skull, which makes sense because Crystal Skull came out late into the early 2000s. Right. But that's not really fair to compare the two. So adjusting for inflation, this is the highest grossing with a domestic gross with inflation of $716 million. That's crazy. Wow,
1: pretty crazy. Yeah, that's crazy because it's an original work, original for the most part, uh, of a new product that probably no one has really heard of and somehow almost gets a billion dollars with inflation, of course, in the box office. Oh, yeah. Very successful.
0: (laughs) Oh, extremely successful, wildly popular. And the kind of uh, irony is adjusting for inflation Crystal Skull, the fourth one, is the lowest grossing, so it's kind of flipped. That's
1: very funny. I'm sure that'll make sense when we get there.
0: (laughs) Well, and like we said, at the time, this movie was, it got eight Academy Award nominations and won four of the eight. So it won Best Art Direction slash Set Decoration, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best uh, Visual Effects. And also a special achievement for uh, sound effects editing, and it was nominated for best picture of the year. Spielberg was nominated for best director, and yeah, like Alan said, best cinematography, and John Williams was nominated for best original score. Harrison Ford no nominating, or I'm surprised. I'm okay. This is one I'm really surprised about. No uh, nomination for best original screenplay
1: yeah that's interesting where is that
0: i don't know (laughs) so uh i was hoping for some more bonus features on my blu-ray disc but i guess i got a really bare bones uh, i didn't get the indiana jones box set i just have the individual releases they're very bare bones i was hoping for a commentary from uh somebody prominent hopefully spielberg but that didn't happen all I got was trailers, so I thought the trailers were pretty fun, pretty adventurous. Uh, they uh, they just nailed it. I thought I would be in the theaters to go see it from these trailers. Thankfully, they didn't give much away. Uh, I thought they nailed it when they said, It's the greatest adventure film of all time, and it's always fun. And I thought, you know what? That's true. It It, it is very fun, and the way the trailer is cut with the voiceover work, with this classic deep trailer voice. It's very nostalgic. And you know. Heck even the font and title design is fun. For this movie. For this film yeah. I would oh, yeah. say.
1: I would absolutely agree. I mean I think I only saw. I'm not sure what trailer it was. But uh, yes. The one that I saw was. Kind of ominous. And mysterious and things like that. Which is totally. It totally captures the tone of the Ark of the Covenant. That we'll get to later. Um, I thought it did a really good job because it it felt like it was kind of in the middle of those older trailers and the newer trailers because older trailers had a, usually had a narrator and they would kind of talk about whatever and then now films don't have a narrator anymore unless they're being ironic and the the story is more told through editing and clips from the movie so it kind of had but bo- it kind of had both of those it was very interesting to see.
0: Well, I'm ready to get into the plot if you are. Yes, I am.
1: I'm very excited. Let's go.
0: Well, listeners, I should say, though, before we jump into the plot, there will be some spoilers, of course. So if you haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I highly recommend you do before it gets spoiled for you. go Also, ahead where and... have you been? Exactly. <laughs> Maybe you're young. Maybe they're young, Alan. All right. All right.
1: <laughs> sure. Fair enough.
0: Go ahead and hit pause right now go check out the movie it is readily available for you to watch I believe it's on Amazon Prime yes right it now, is Prime Video.
1: that's how I watched it because I then don't you know don't how I'd own this it. Blu-ray but I don't
0: oh my gosh I thought you owned it
1: I thought I did too and I don't I guess
0: <laughs> I'm sure you're gonna correct that fairly soon
1: yeah I think oh I know why I've been waiting for the box set to go down in price so I could just get the trilogy oh. or quad gotcha. trilogy or whatever
0: So, you have been warned, we are about to jump into spoilers. If you don't want to hear any spoilers, hit pause now. Go ahead and check out the movie. Come back and hit play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Indiana Jones is your average college professor, archaeologist, expert on the occult, and obtainer of rare artifacts. One day, while teaching a class, Indy played by Harrison Ford, is approached by government agents who are concerned with the Nazi search for the Staff of Ra in Egypt. Indy believes they are truly searching for the Ark of the Covenant and merely need the Staff of Ra to find the whereabouts of the Ark. In the times of the biblical Old Testament, the Ark housed the Ten Commandments from Moses and was carried around by the ancient Israelites. The Ark is believed to contain unstoppable power and the Nazis believe they can use it to take over the world. The problem is no one knows where the Ark ever disappeared to. Legend tells of a pharaoh who carried off the Ark back to Egypt, but the city was consumed by a sandstorm a year later. For 3,000 years, a man has searched for the Ark, and they might just have found it this time. With the promise of the Ark going to the museum, if Indy finds it, he sets off for Nepal, where his old mentor Abner Ravenwood lives. Indy finds Abner has passed away, but his daughter, Marion, played by Karen Allen, whose heart Indy broke ten years ago, may have her father's medallion, a.k.a. the Staff of Ra, which unlocks the location of the Ark. The two are interrupted by a Nazi named Tote, played by Ronald Lacey, who also seeks the medallion. The two escape with the medallion to Cairo, Egypt, where they team up with, I don't know, how do you think his name is pronounced? Sala? Sala? Well, they Sala?
1: pronounce it Sala in the movie, so I'm just going with
0: that. Okay, I was having a hard time hearing. Yeah. <laughs> Sala is played by John Reese davies who knows of the Nazi activity searching for the Ark and knows how to get them into the map room so they may find the true location of the Ark. But when Indy and Marion decide to go to the market, Marion is kidnapped and seemingly dies in a truck explosion. Indy in shock over the death of his companion, is apprehended by the Nazis and taken to one of their leaders, Belloc, played by Paul Freeman. Belloc is a direct competitor to Indy, and Belloc is willing to fight dirty to get what he wants. Indy is released and heads to the dig site with Salah to find the map room. Once in the map room, Indy uses the medallion and the staff to find the true location of the Ark. Before leaving the site, Indy spots Marion tied up alive and well in a tent but decides against rescuing her, since that would alert the Nazis to his presence there. Indy and Sala begin digging and find the Ark. Once they hoist the Ark back to the surface, they are foiled by Belloc and the Nazis, who take the Ark for themselves and toss Marion down in the chamber with Indy. Using one of the ancient Egyptian statues, Indy is able to push it into a wall, allowing them to escape the chamber. In a daring chase, Indy rescues the Ark back from the Nazis and safely loads it aboard a ship headed for the States. Alas, the Nazis once again track down Indy, board the ship, and take the Ark onto their submarine along with Marion. But Indy stows away onto the sub, which takes them to an island. Indy quickly makes his presence known by threatening to blow up the Ark with a bazooka. (laughs) Being the proud archaeologist he is, he can't bring himself to do it. So Indy and Marion are captured and tied up as the Nazis, with the aid of Belloc acting as a high priest, attempt to harness the powers of the Ark. Unfortunately for them, they find only sand in the Ark, but something more powerful is unleashed. Angels of death proceed and decimate the Nazi forces, yet spare Indy and Marion. Back in the States, Indy is told by the government agents the Ark will in fact not go to the museum. Frustrated, he is not able to show the world his find. He states the bureaucrats don't know what they have. When Marion replies, but I know what I have. The two go off to live happily ever after while the arc is shelved away in a top secret government warehouse as credits roll. Wow, it's a, it's an exciting movie.
1: Yeah. Like you just said, why wasn't this
0: nominated for Best Original Screenplay? I know that is very. How does a movie get nominated for Best Picture but not Best Screenplay? I don't know. Uh, yeah, this movie is incredibly adventurous. And uh, Spielberg would team up with another prominent director, Peter Jackson, to make another adventurous film that is very reminiscent of this, I would say, uh, The Adventures of Tintin. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is on. I enjoyed that movie. It's on Netflix right now. I'm hoping they make another one. The other movie I'm very much reminded of is Secondhand Lions. Oh, yeah. With the flashbacks in the Arabian Desert and in the marketplace when they're fighting everyone, they seriously channeled Indiana Jones for those flashbacks.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think it would be an understatement to say that this was kind of an influence on cinema since it came out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I, I would say that this movie has given way to a number of cliches, uh... Of course, back then, not necessarily cliches, but they've taken off this movie and they've kind of become cliches. Yes, this is a very influential film on cinema and probably for good reason, because uh, like you were just saying, it's quite the adventure.
0: Well, and one of the most uh, this movie is filled with iconic scenes while they've become iconic and right off the bat this opening is so iconic where they're in the South American jungle it's 1936 they're searching for some kind of treasure I love how we don't see uh Indiana Jones face until he pulls out the whip and then his face comes out of the shadow into view it's pretty epic it's uh really cements him as this tough guy you don't mess with And especially when we get to all the booby traps, uh, probably the most notable is the boulder that he has to run from.
1: Right. And I do know that originally it wasn't nearly this big and or didn't go on for this long. And then Spielberg loved how it looked so much that he said, we'll let it go for a little longer. And so they let it roll more than it had originally been planned for. Uh, Yes, this opening scene has been parodied many a time. I think. The one that first pops into my head is UHF with Weird Al Yankovic. The oh. opening to that movie is parodying off of this movie. Uh, yeah. Very influential. And I would... And it's interesting, too, because we are introduced to Indy's character in a very interesting way. Because at first, he's kind of shown as this really smart guy. He's knows his way around these places. He's obviously been here before. Uh, but it isn't until... He gets up to the idol and he puts the bag of sand in place of the idol on the uh, stand, and then turns out he triggers something. And although he's been very smart and knows his way around like, almost everything that he's come across up to this point, it's that one mistake that kind of, of course, brings down the whole thing. Uh, it's interesting, too, because it shows that although, yes, he is very smart and very Street uh, has very has street smarts where he goes. He's not necessarily invincible. He's still a regular guy. And then the scene that comes right after this whole after he escapes everything is him teaching at a college, which is unlike what you would normally see with a movie like this. He's a professor. He looks normal. It's it's an interesting way at uh, I would even say building tension, especially in this opening, because. We see him first as like this really smart guy. And then when he trips the uh, the trap at the very end of the temple, we get the sense of, okay, is he going to make it out? Because now that he's tripped this, we know that he isn't as smart as we initially thought. And it kind of brings, it builds that tension in a very interesting way. And then, of course, we use that later on for many things.
0: And that is one thing I really do love about the Indiana Jones character is that he's not invincible. So often with movies today, the hero can not do anything. You know you're going to be safe with them because there's no situation they can't get out of. And I think one of the best movies that kind of parodies that is Night and Day with Tom Cruise, where he is just completely invincible. And uh, that's even one of the issues that I had with Jurassic World: The Fallen Kingdom is Chris, Chris Pratt's character was just too good. But there's uh, repeated, repeatedly throughout this movie, you see him. He gets tired. He gets beaten down. He gets punched quite a bit. He doesn't win every fight. He doesn't get the best of every situation. He can't always save everyone or everything. And you're right. I do love that about this character. Is he's still very human because as we come to find out, he's just a college professor. Yeah. And that threw me for a loop the first time I saw this movie because you're like, "Oh man, this guy is just a full time treasure hunter." No, not really. I mean, he's mostly just a full time college professor that sometimes gets the funding and approval to go and search for artifacts for the museum.
1: Right. It's. Is. I wonder if for him, because normally the phrase is uh, "publish or perish" when you're a pre- when you're a professor. So I wonder if his thing is. He instead of publishing a book, he goes and finds old artifacts that just, that just sounds' funny to me, but yeah, uh so interesting that a movie from the eighties i mean we talked about commando about a about a year and a half ago, and oh, yeah. how Arnold Schwarzenegger is just this big guy who can do anything and is totally invincible to Indiana Jones. And he's just a normal guy. And in fact, in a couple of situations, he actually kind of cheats to get his way out of a situation. I think the biggest example is when he was with the plane fight scene. Uh, he, There's no way he can beat this guy that's come out. And so is the one way he does is to mildly distract him until the pro- the propeller hits him. And that's how he wins. He, he doesn't win because he overpowers him. He wins because he more or less outwits him or distracts him. It's interesting that... He's such a normal, a normal fella, and he does these crazy adventures to do what something that he loves. It's a very interesting way of of crafting a character.
0: Well, and it also does set him apart from James Bond because I know there was some mentions of how they kind of wanted to do a James Bond esque movie. Uh, this still feels very different from that ultimately it's not just a james bond movie reskinned but i do think this is really what sets him apart from james bond is because james bond is usually very cardboard and nothing can get the best of him there's always some deus ex situation that saves him whereas this movie really doesn't go down that route and especially doesn't present the character that way and by 81 i'm Bond movies had been coming out for 20 years, and by 81, some of those movies were just abysmal. So, uh, George Lucas was right. I've got a character that's better than Bond, speaking at the time anyway.
1: Right. And, kind of going back to that opening scene real quick, we've talked about this with Ready Player One, and others in Jurassic Park, I guess, is a bitter example of this. Uh, The Spielberg way of Revealing information. I mean, like, like what I kind of mentioned earlier, Indiana Jones' character is built up to be this really smart guy. And then we don't know exactly know where he's going. And then we eventually figure it out. And then he does get into the temple and take the, takes the idol and the whole thing is trapped. It's an interesting way of building tension and then building information. Because Spielberg has a way of doing that where he gives you little pieces to build tension up until the climax, and then, of course, by that point, it's usually pretty intense. It, this, of course, happens throughout this movie. This is nothing new. This is something that Spielberg has done probably for years as much as I, as far as I've seen. Just wanted to mention that here.
0: And also just a great set. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, Have temporary. we ever
1: seen a set like this before? It's crazy how like immaculate it is and how detailed it is.
0: Yeah, and it really does just make me miss those real-life sets because so much of it is just CGI with maybe a papier-mâché rock that they interact with. Right. (laughs) I'm also reminded of uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, which came out just two years before this, where they built those sets as well. And those sets were just massive and huge. So it's a real environment that they're actually in. And yeah, I think Spielberg is very well known for having incredible sets in his movie. And the movie did win the Oscar for the set decoration is what they called it back then. And it absolutely deserved it. I just love these sets. It really brings you into the movie. And you know they're interacting with something real. They just always look so great. It's so adventurous.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, these sets are look fantastic, especially from this opening. I mean, of course, when it's not like outside, uh, then it's, then it's mo- most likely a set, of course. So, yeah, it's interesting that we've moved away from that and it's more of just we'll make some of the set and then just green screen the rest of it, you know, or maybe all of us green screen or whatever. It It's interesting, too, because later on, we get a lot of, practical stuff for instance the car chase scene when indy's trying to get the ark of the covenant from the back of this truck the whole thing is basically all practical which is so interesting because the guy the stunt devil literally climbs under the truck and is dragged also by the truck and then climbs on top back on top back on top of the truck and then back into the driver's seat like it's all practical i mean of course there are cuts and stuff but it's all practical the stunt man in Harrison Ford actually did that which you don't always see as much anymore i would say the most notable example of a more recent and upcoming movie would have been would be mission impossible tom cruise is always there's always that one like stunt move that he always that is always like the big thing for those movies
0: yeah absolutely and i really did find the stunt work in this movie to be incredibly well done and it was especially that truck scene where uh, it's Harrison Ford. He is there on the front of that truck as it's plowing along. Very scary, but that's amazing that he did that stunt as well. Cause you can clearly see that's his face. And then the stunt man slips underneath the truck, but it got me thinking, uh, I think stunt people are really underappreciated. And should we have, I'm almost thinking we should create a, an Academy award for, a uh, stunt people for their work, maybe for best stunt in a movie or best stunt actor or actress. I think that'd be a nice recognition.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if a recognition would be best because normally for the Academy, we don't always get action movies. But yes, it, it they I would say that they don't get as much recognition as they used to. Uh, they're most they're more notable in this movie where you do so many crazy things versus movies now where. It's either CG. They're still used and used quite heavily, uh, but more or less it's going to be CG if it's a dangerous, If it's a stunt that's too dangerous. Once again, Tom Cruise is one that usually is willing to do something quite dangerous uh, and not have a stunt double do it in Mission Impossible at least. But yeah, it, that would be interesting to see at least some kind of recognition for stunt work because it is dangerous. I mean, of course, there are safety precautions all over the place. Uh, there are safety precautions for obvious reasons, but that would be interesting to have.
0: It's also important to note that this opening not only serves as getting us into the character, into the mood of the, the movie is setting, this adventurous tone, but also this character of Belloc is not just a an opening throwaway enemy like we've seen in other movies. It is nice that we're introduced to him here as this direct competitor who has the same pursuits as uh, Indy but with a completely different set of morals on how he'll achieve them and it is nice how he is brought back later on into the movie when they come into Cairo so he is kind of this anti-Indiana Jones he is the nemesis that is willing to use uh natives or dark magic or something or he's just very expedient to how he'll get to do those things whereas uh indy is usually very wary about who he works with who he trusts who he brings along he's willing to protect people instead of exploit them so he is set up here as a very nice uh anti-hero or i I don't want to say anti-hero he's a uh, Anti Indiana Jones that will definitely pay off later on.
1: Yeah, I and it's interesting too because I mean, right off the bat, I mean, you don't really notice it the first time you're watching it because you don't know if he'll come back or not. But right off the bat, we get the difference in morals between the two. Where Indiana Jones is just trying to get it back to the museum, Belloc wants basically wants it for money, and he and he'll do that by any means possible. And it's almost like taking candy from a baby because Belloc doesn't really. Do terribly much. He just waits for Indiana Jones to come out and then takes it from him. And even he says, uh, I forget the line exactly, but he says, "There is something that which you and which you possess that I that I cannot take away," or something like that. So clearly, they have some kind of history. And uh, like you were just saying, the morals between the two are like on opposite ends because one wants it for self pleasure and the other one wants it for basically the goodness of humanity and like knowing where we came from and things like that there. And I think the best scene where this is like mentioned and then battled between the two is in Cairo after Marion dies, they have this conversation and basically Bella comes out and just says everything. And they have a couple of really good lines between the two of them. And it kind of brings up that question of is Indy, going to subject himself to this to get the arc back and like is he actually going to turn more towards bellach's ways to do it or is he actually going to go about it in his own way in the way he should very interesting conversation that comes up here
0: and you do definitely see that played out especially in the end of the movie whether india is willing to pretty much kill and use violence right to get what he thinks is right or not and it, it is interesting how this character isn't just uh, one note. He does have those moral questionings that deal with And I think that is what helps make him more relatable to the audience. Because if he was too perfect, then uh, we just wouldn't buy it. We wouldn't be as attached to him as uh, many moviegoers have become over the years. Right. Now, once they get to the college, this is where we get... Uh, pretty much really the only exposition of the movie, I feel, uh, where they just kind of sit down and discuss the Covenant, and, or the Ark, I should say. What is this Staff of Ra and Tannis? He has to explain it to these government agents who apparently have no idea what they're talking about, even though they're the ones coming to them. I guess they're there to learn. I think it can get a little confusing because a lot of names and places are thrown out in a short period, but they get the point across is they're after the, they're in Egypt, they're after the Ark of the Covenant, and Indiana Jones basically has to go, uh, stop them. I'm not sure if it's clear why he has to go to Nepal to find the medallion. I understand the point of the medallion, but I just think they don't really give a clear explanation where, oh yeah, Abner Ravenwood had the staff of raw medallion. That's where it, I'll go and check. What, I mean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I was a little bit confused on this too, but I, I actually went around the scene and played it back. Essentially. Yes. Uh, Ravenwood has, I think just passed down from generations. Indy knows this because he had a past relationship with Ravenwood, both The dad, and then as we come out to find out later, Marion, the daughter. So Indy knows that he has the medallion, this top part of the staff of Ra. Um, So he needs to go to Nepal to get that, but he doesn't know that uh, I forget Abner Ravenwood is dead because they had a falling out at one point. So yes, he has it, and Indy needs to go get it. That's essentially how he. crafts how he gets there and stuff like that that's it's it's like one line and they say it very briefly later on that he did die and that marion and indiana jones have a short conversation it is pretty hard to miss but i do think that it they basically get the they get the basic ideas across of we need to do this this and that and that's really all you need to know uh to at least understand what we're going next
0: and, yeah, they do make it to, well, Indy makes it to Nepal. And we get a fun little uh, kind of montage scene of his plane hitting, touching down on a globe through the different areas. And uh, I think they did that in, like, the Rescuers Down Under, some Disney movies, yeah, cartoons that this, I've seen.
1: This is one of those scenes that have just kind of popped up here and there in different different yeah. movies for reasons that are pretty obvious. I do believe that this plane is actually a miniature uh, and Industrial Light and Magic sure it come came in and did all this fancy work with it. But yeah, it's hmm. I didn't know that until doing research for this movie that is, that is actually a miniature. They did a really good job.
0: Oh. Very nice. I do gotta say when they do get in Nepal and we're introduced to Marion, she is uh, engaged in a drinking contest with a man named Regan, I think. I was never sure if that was a man, honestly. Uh I know it's a man now, but for right. some reason I always thought it was an old woman that she was having a <laughs> drinking contest with. I don't know that if we would ever that would be funny or not. That'd be
1: funny. It's interesting though because this movie does a really good job at setting up everything that you need to know, at least the base of all the characters. In as little time as possible. I think Indiana Jones is probably yes. the only character that gives, that's been give, as given the most time to develop. Because Marion, we find out that she's pretty strong willed because she owns this bar or pub and she can out drink all the men there, which comes back later when she is captured by Belloc and she tries to
0: escape. And I do like that they set up, there is kind of this past relationship between them. Right. It's kind of a cliche, but it's nothing not like some horrible cliche. And it works because it provides a lot of uh, contention between the two characters and how they will work together or how they'll work separately and be uh, very contentious and uh, kind of fidgety with each other. And I really do like the chemistry between Harrison Ford and uh, I don't remember her name, but Marion in the movie. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, once again, a couple of lines and we done because we know that Indy had a relationship with her dad, but we don't know exactly why there was a falling out. And then we find out here in the scene, oh, it's because he tried to get it on with Marion, and then his dad said, "Uh, uh-uh, no, none of that," and that's what caused Indiana Jones to move on from then on. Is it's it's so interesting because yes, now they have this relationship, and there's definitely some hurt there between the two, but. He needs to talk to Marion because she has a very important piece and the Nazis are coming to get it eventually. They'll figure it out. So it's interesting how this movie does a really good job at putting very pretty complex ideas into just a couple of sentences and then just let you figure it out.
0: And I had never picked that up before that there was an explanation given as to their uh, breakup and it was because of her father probably felt like she was too young and uh, Indiana was too old. I missed that. I've always missed that. So I'm glad you clarified that for me.
1: Yeah. That's something that I honestly found this time around. It's Mm. pretty subtle. Uh, It's not necessarily a necessity to the story, but it does make a lot of sense as to why it's here and, and why it's needed to be told.
0: Oh, yeah. Also, I got to say, this lady looks kind of like a... I've always thought she looked like a brunette Lindsay Lohan to me. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, uh, they they get engaged fairly quickly in a fight with a new character. He is a Nazi named Tote. Very creepy character. Very
1: slimy here.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's just so sweaty in this scene. It just really gets to you. Yeah. But there is something I really do like in this scene. And that's just something kind of peppered throughout the rest of the movie. There's just these little moments that make the scene that much better. And in this scene in particular, it's when Marion has the log that's on fire. And she's going to go knock out one of the Nepalese henchmen. But before doing that. The keg is spilling over and she decides to just uh, open up her mouth and take a drink, even though knocking the guy out who is potentially about to murder Indiana Jones should be far more important. But it's just these little character nuances of them doing realistic things in real life. Like, yeah, that's where your brain goes, maybe at first. Oh, I'm gonna do this first, or you get distracted, or it just gives a very human touch to these characters, which I really enjoyed.
1: Yeah, that that's one of the funnier ones. And then like just a second later when Indy is like pinned onto the counter and he looks at Mary and goes, Whiskey? And she hands him a bottle of whiskey <laughs> yeah. and he bashes it overhead. Yeah, there are little moments where things are just kind of silly in this movie, but it like yes. helps with like lightening the tone. Because even though this is kind of a spooky Absolutely. moment because these guys are coming in to basically kill Marion and Indiana Jones, it's played for laughs. And it's not like it's not like super realistic. It makes it that much more fun to watch. Even though it is a little bit corny or whatever, it just makes it that much fun to watch now and back then.
0: Mm. I completely agree. And there is something important about this scene. Uh, Tote burns his hand on the medallion. And they correct me if I'm wrong, but do they use that burn to try and read the inscription to make their own staff? And because uh, the burn wasn't completely clear, they their staff wasn't correct measurement wise, and that's why they're digging in the wrong place.
1: Yes, uh, yes, you're abs- you're absolutely correct. Uh, so he grabs a medallion after it being burned. Uh, and he burns his hand. So that, like you were just saying, creates an, like, basically, it it's a tattoo on his hand. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, anyways. They brand. Yes, that's it. They brand, they, he, it's basically branded onto his hand. So yes, they use that later, but they had have a guy, when they're in Cairo, read the medallion. And, and on one side, it says that the staff has to be so tall. And then on the other side, it says, but take off one for the Lord. So they have, their, their uh. staff, is just a little bit too tall, and when and so they craft a replica of the headpiece, and because the staff is too tall, they're digging in the wrong place. It's a pretty small detail, but it becomes very important there towards the end. At least, uh, at the very least, they show that he has a burn on his hand. When later on, that toad has that burn, uh, so at least they kind of tied that before it became too confusing.
0: And this movie's use of setup is very well done where you think oh this probably doesn't have any consequence but it usually does come back in some way that furthers the plot along and i think that's just a credit to the writing being able to uh foreshadow things that aren't necessarily even really being foreshadowed but they still do have an importance and an impact so it makes you feel like Nothing is wasted in this world. Nothing's really pointless. There are these real world consequences that will uh, create different effects throughout the story. And I, I think that's just great. I really appreciate that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things that makes it so rewatchable and so much fun to watch it a second time is because the first when when Indiana Jones hops on the plane, the first thing he says is there's a there's a, there's a snake in the plane, jock. And of course, this comes back later. And he says, like outwardly says, I hate snakes, Jock. I hate them. And then later on, then they open up the well or when they open up the chamber that the Ark of the Covenant is stuck in, the first line is snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? It it sets it up. That's one small example. But there are plenty of them all throughout this movie um, that come back in some form or another. I think one of the the more subtle ones is when Indiana Jones enters... uh, marion's like bar and the first we don't actually see him we just see his shadow cast on the wall which comes back later with the arc but is also but also comes back later with many different things which is interesting that they use shadows to portray different things in this movie it's i just find that interesting
0: oh yeah it's so well the it's so well shot the use of lighting cinematography it's it's just so well done but you do really have to pay attention in this movie, I found out because yeah, like you're saying, it's just that nuance of it's burned on his hand, but if you flip it over, then you learn that you have to take one off and uh, if you're not listening closely, then you will miss that because it's just there and gone and but I will say it's not like you're you would be completely lost. thankfully this right. movie, even though it does have some important details and it can be fairly detailed at times it knows that its audience isn't just going to be an archaeologist like indiana jones and search for every little detail Uh, they're also here for a summer blockbuster movie Uh, they're here for a fun adventure and we still get that as well so i think it it does play to a broad range of audiences yeah and
1: spielberg is well known for doing that. Almost all of his movies are made for basically everybody. Uh, where even if the young... No matter how young or old you are, you can still pick on different details. Especially growing up, watching it again and again and again and having being more mature and knowing more things, you pick up on different stuff. This is one of them where... Like the shadows, I was just talking about the shadows on the wall. It could be it could be in a couple of different things, but you won't, maybe not even pick it up the first time you watch it as a kid. And then later on, you understand why it's there. It, yeah, this is one of those, Spielbergers is just kind of known for doing this kind of thing.
0: The movie, the film is going along at a really good pace. And we're already in Cairo, Egypt. And uh, we're introduced to the character of uh, Sala and played by John Rhys-Davies. And I do remember learning for the first time that was Gimli. And I was like, wait a minute. Gimli is short. He's a dwarf. How is how is that possible? I just thought that was funny. Yeah. But uh, when they are on the rooftop here in the beginning, it's very pretty. It's a very nice locale. India looks at Marion and the uh, Williams score in this scene is so well done. And... It's kind of the Indian Marion theme, which I feel uh, kind of runs rival with the Han and Leia theme from yeah. Star Wars.
1: Yeah, there are a number of things that sound pretty Star Wars-y. I mean, you know it's not Star Wars, but they are very similar. That's just because john Yam's compositions are all kind of that way. Uh, but yeah, it, I would say that this, like, it's very well known what theme it is. Because yes, you have the Indiana Jones, basically they love theme here. And then you also have just Indiana Jones' theme, which is by far the most popular. Uh, but then you have one of my favorites of all time, the theme of the Ark of the Covenant, which is so... It's like, okay, the, the theme does a really good job at, at crafting mystery, and you know it's kind of different and serene and things like that. And the first time it comes up is the first time the Ark of the Covenant is really shown to us. And that's when the uh, these guys are asking... What does it look like or whatever? And he goes, well, I've got a picture of it right here. And he pulls it out of his book. And then the scene, the, the theme begins when the picture is shown in the book. And just to kind of, cra- just a kind of uh, little Easter egg or the de- little detail that happens later on, the, it's interesting because we have Marion's theme a couple of, well, there are a couple of times when there is a main theme happening and then the Ark of the Covenant theme just kind of comes in and takes over the show and one of them is with marion uh let me think of me think of when that happens in the movie but there's one moment in the movie when marion's theme is playing or maybe it's a love theme and then like it's like a hard left turn and it and it, it goes right into the arc of, Co- of the covenant theme so it, the it's interesting how this movie clashes with the, these different themes in this movie
0: and this movie does do a great job of balancing action and drama scenes and like even exploration scenes that aren't necessarily action oriented but i do feel like uh these action scenes just keep being topped one after the other they just become uh maybe if not bigger just even more adventurous a little more crazy because it seems like every time more players are introduced to the scene and the marketplace scene is fantastic And I really believe Spielberg knows how to craft these well-constructed scenes with a little bit of humor, unique characters, and a lot of action and a lot of fun. That doesn't follow convention, but opts for creativity. And the balance is held nicely between Marion and Indy. And we do see that a lot throughout this movie where it does kind of go back and forth between Marion and Indy. And I think it does that on purpose in order to A, build tension and also give us a reason to really care about marion and invest in her character as well and of course all of it is cemented with uh william's light fanciful score in these action sequences especially in the marketplaces yeah specifically but uh i just gotta say probably my favorite part and this is probably everybody else's favorite part too is when the giant scary looking arabian knight in his black garb and his massive sword it's like you know david versus goliath here and indy he just like rolls his eyes and he's like oh my gosh i don't have time f- for this i can't right. just get in a fist fight with everybody so he just pulls out his gun and shoots him and yeah. everybody starts
1: cheering yeah it fun fact about that scene i'm sure everyone probably heard this but uh harrison ford was sick on that day and he and they had been practicing for months to get this choreography down it's supposed to be some oh, really big wow. fight and then harrison ford was like can i just shoot him And Spielberg said, yeah, right. And so that's what led to this moment happening. It was supposed to be some big fight, but he wasn't feeling very good the day of shooting this. Which, in my mind, almost makes it that much funnier. Because this whole scene is already kind of silly, just in general. And then having that is almost like icing on the cake.
0: Oh, yeah, it really does. And I'm glad they chose that instead. Because it's unexpected. But it's also realistic. Because if you have the means to not just get in hand-to-hand combat or fight somebody with a giant sword, you have a gun. You know, never bring a knife to a gunfight, right? Right. So that's exactly what this does here. Plus, we also get a scene later on where he fights a giant Nazi. So it really wouldn't make sense for him to fight a giant Nazi and a giant Egyptian. I think that would have been too similar of scene. So this is, it's humorous. It's, it's great and it's very iconic. It's, I love it. Yeah, and I like how this scene ends, too, because,
1: yeah, it's kind of this whole, I would say this is probably the silliest action scene in this movie. Uh, But then it ends on a very quite serious note and where we believe that Marion died uh, by Indiana Jones shooting the driver of of this truck and then it topples over and explodes. So we're led to believe that, he, that she dies, which is interesting because this whole scene has been pretty playful up until this point. And then a pretty major character is killed off per se. Interesting way to end the scene, but it leads into, it kind of shows that a, there are stakes here to this and B it leads into Indiana Jones being basically, uh, at his low point of this movie, which is interesting because it's like right in the middle that his low point is that basically in the middle of the movie, uh, when he has to overcome uh, and deal with the loss of Marion, which ends up she's alive later on.
0: And I think it serves as a nice kind of transition into the more serious side of the movie yeah. where it does come down to he is going to have to, you know, fight these uh, these Nazis face to face. He's going to have to find this arc and deal with its uh, spiritual aspects as well. So, yeah, it does... Sh- uh, you're exactly right. It does show that there are stakes in this movie. It's a nice way to cap off this fun scene because it uh, it does kind of bring you more into a bit of a more serious tone here in the second half. Uh, although I will say, how does a truck just blow up by just tipping over?
1: The only explanation that we're given is that it's filled with ammunition. Uh <laughs> So that, okay. I guess that constitutes as an explosion.
0: <laughs> yes. So in the Marhalla bar scene where Indy talks with Belloc, I think Belloc's dialogue is uh, it's very well written. I find it to be very interesting. I do find Harrison's Ford's dialogue and his acting to be a little silly where he's now just constantly- nasty. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) just getting nasty. And he just rolls his eyes and he just, he seems a little, I understand he is going through a loss. The way it comes off, he's very kind of pouty and moody about this. And I think he's probably just ticked off. He has to deal with Belloc again. But I do think this is a great scene. And uh, I love how it ends with the deus deus ex-children Yes, (laughs) It's not completely unbelievable because the day of sex usually is uh, unbelievable. But Salah was looking for him and he said, I might find you here. And it does provide a little more comic relief just to ensure that this movie is not going to be this radical tone shift into this dark movie where the young innocent girl that we were just getting to like is dead. And now everything is, you know, the white gloves are off. So it, it does right. a good job of bringing us back so we're not going too far over that edge, if that makes sense.
1: Right. And it's interesting, too, because for better or for worse, uh, the last time he saw – oh, man, what is his name? Abner Ravenwood Ravenwood is when they had the falling out with, with uh, Marion. And then he's the cause of Marion's death. Uh, there in the end, which is interesting to make that connection. But yeah, this I think this is probably the scene when Belloc's character really shines because we really get that like his entire motivation to go after this. It's not necessarily not necessarily for money this time. He's just really curious to know what's inside this, and he's going to use the power of this Ark of the Covenant for essentially war and. Things like that. So it's interesting because we get all that dialogue between him and Indy. I talked about this earlier. But yeah, this is where you really get that dichotomy between the two of the two motives, like literally coming head to head. And there is nothing that Indy can do currently. He would, he could shoot him, but he himself would also be killed. And that wouldn't do much for the sake of the arc.
0: One other scene that I always uh, liked that I felt did uh, still show that there was some stakes left to be dealt with was when the monkey eats the poison date and Sala catches it right above Indy's mouth right before it goes in Uh, that's a tense moment Uh, I always found that just to be cool how he caught the date but uh, also just like wow so these people are coming close to death and they've really got some uh, serious bad guys to deal with here they're poisoning yeah. monkeys for Pete's sake.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting <laughs> too because you see Indy pick up the date at the very start of the scene, and so mm-hmm. for at least a minute and a half, you're just like, "What's what's going to happen? Is he gonna he's gonna eat the date?" And then you know that they are absolutely poisoned when the monkey eats one, and then Salah of course saves the day and goes bad dates when he catches the date from uh, being thrown in the air. Yeah, very very interesting. Very interesting stuff. I I do kind of want to go back to the conversation because I just I just saw something in my notes about this. Uh, the views on archaeology between the two guys, because uh, S- Bedlock brings up this really interesting example of a watch, and he says, "Look at this watch. I got it for like ten bucks off the off the street. It's basically useless. I put it in the sand and buried for a thousand years. It's priceless." And it's just an it's like half true because a lot of the things we find in the sand and find or I guess find in the earth are kind of priceless if they come from ancient times and how much we value those, even if there isn't much that they're worth, be like a plate from the Titanic or things like that. It's more of the historical significance that Indy sees versus the value. Of it that Belloc sees. Just wanted to bring that up. I saw it in my notes and I thought it would be a good idea to bring it up.
0: I really thought that was fascinating as well how it's uh, over history because it's a piece of a time so long past that there's no way for us to really connect with it except through these objects that were handmade. Yeah, it does become priceless if he puts it in the sand and. Um, belloc yeah he he sees it as objects and he also sees people as objects because he says the same thing to indiana he says who knows maybe you'll be worth something in a thousand years right as well and that was an interesting tie back to his conversation prior to that and it's also interesting because indiana is more focused on finding these treasures and uh, preserving them but in Belloc's example, he's not talking about digging things up. He's talking about burying them and achieving their worth through that means. And it's interesting because the job of an archaeologist is to dig things up, not bury them. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, Belloc gives the example of how if he buries something, it'll be it'll have monetary value. And I think. Uh, indy could care less about the monetary value he just more so cares about the uh, historical and cultural value that it represents right right and i do also like how marion is alive i'm glad they didn't kill her off yes and i do like how this defies convention once again because you're like oh of course he's going to save the girl they're going to get out of there and indy's like i probably should leave you here for quite a while because they're gonna know i'm here if, if we get here and of course she puts up a fight right and i thought that was really funny right. but once they do find the true location of the ark i gotta say i always found it a little odd how uh indy and his crew set up a rival dig site pretty much right next door to the nazis and the egyptians and Indy feels good enough to shed his disguise, put his clothes back on, and they're obviously just digging right over there because the very next morning they just turn around and they're like wait, what?
1: <laughs> wait 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 a minute.
0: <laughs> I know it's just it's right next door and they're digging. It's it's just funny how it's just so obvious but nobody knows.
1: Yeah. And To bring up my love for the uh, Ark of the Covenant scene, when he hops down the Well of Souls Mm -hmm. and that whole scene plays out and the theme. This is when the theme is really brought to the forefront. Uh, Love it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do also want to bring up the editing in this scene because tension is increasingly being built by first they have to get away down there. Then they have to deal with the snakes then they have to get to the ark. They have to figure out a way to get it off there. And instead of just that being one complete scene, it's intercut with Marion. And I found that to be very interesting because clearly, what Indiana Jones is doing is far more interesting, and that's really what we want to see. But if they didn't intercut it with Marion, then we would quickly lose interest in her character. And uh, like I said, this is a nice way of building tension for us to get to the arc instead of it just being this one entire you know swooshing moment as they just go right up there we also uh, are intercut with what's going on with Marion and that movie has set that precedent which at first I was I was kind of wondering I was like is this the right move because I just want to see them get to the arc I honestly don't really care about what's going on with Marion because I find it to be kind of boring how she's teasing him and they're getting supposedly drunk and whatnot. It really doesn't seem to have any uh, consequences, but uh, we can see why it does eventually because she lands herself in hot water, which gets her thrown down into the well of souls. So I think that's a nice editing choice.
1: Yeah. And if there's one thing that this movie and, a lot of Spielberg movies do is that every scene has more than one reason to exist. It's not just there to exist just to get on to the next one, uh, because like you, yeah, this scene when they're in, when they're intercutting between uh, Marion and Belloc having Bellox having a conversation and the opening of the well of the. Chamber that holds the Ark of the Covenant It's interesting that they would make that choice Because they seem like two Opposite different things but Belloc's reason for bringing Marion in is to get More information out of her as to Where is Indiana Jones And where is the medallion He wants to get information out of her so that's the whole reason Why why he's there in the first place But at the same time It kind of sets up for the ending When Indiana Jones and Marion Are together and the Ark is opened And they are together. And right now they're split apart. And it's interesting. And then also it serves for Belloc kind of falling in love with Marion, which is also really funny later on. Because later on he's like, I want the girl. Give me the girl before they throw her down the well of souls. And they throw her down anyways. Uh, Yeah, like I said, this movie does a really good job at having scenes that do multiple different things. And then once again, we have the shadows of the arc when it's being lifted. When they lift it up and we see it in its full glory for once it's, this happens very few times, which is which is interesting. But I think that's the only time we see it fully, the arc, before the ending of the movie. Uh, there's one shot of it, of them putting it onto like this crate, but it's very close. Other than that, it's just a shadow cast on the wall. And then the next time we see it, it's at the very end and it's being opened.
0: There's also some very smart humor during this scene with the snakes. It is very funny, but also quite quite intense and quite frightening because their face is like within an inch of this king cobra or whatever it is i'm sure it's like probably been like defanged or something
1: actually they put a glass like screen in between Indy and the snake
0: oh really yeah. i could not tell that at all
1: yeah they i know that in i think it was in like the vhs copies before 2003 you could kind of see it and they fixed that I was after 2003 they fixed so you can't really see it
0: yeah, I don't doubt that um, because the the trailers had the original footage, which yeah. was very dirty, and they really cleaned it up nicely for the HD release, so it looks great. I didn't I didn't know. I was wondering how they did that. Yeah, but also uh, I love the portable hanger scene. Yes, where <laughs> that's very <Tophed> funny. <laughs> pulls out like supposedly his instruments of torture, and they're so afraid, and they're just making these like, oh my gosh, and then he just like hangs his coat up and yeah that, that's just so clever that's that's so smart but what i didn't find to be very clever or smart was when they uh, no okay once they escaped very cool uh the chamber but then there's like a bunch of like i don't know they're not really mummies because they're wrapped up they're not wrapped up But they're screaming and kind of lunging at Marion. That's a little hokey. Yeah, this movie has
1: its fair share of hokey moments. This is one of them. Yeah, the skeletons are screeching.
0: Kind of silly. And then, of course, once they escape, they... Uh, there's a really nice plane sequence where they're fighting. The propellers are going. It's really intense because somebody's going to get those propellers and they're going to – it's going to be very bad. But and I do I, like how yeah. – what?
1: And like how, how creative of a fight scene where the plane is spinning mm. and Indiana Jones is fighting a huge German guy, which he is clearly outmatched. Yes. And he's trying to avoid the propellers. Such a creative scene. And then there. it's such a creative scene to have like constructed this. It just it's only something that Spielberg would have been able to do.
0: If you're ever at Universal, definitely check out the Indiana Jones experience because it's it's a show and they recreate these exciting moments. It is so much fun, so definitely check that out I think I've seen that, that out. actually. Oh, it's great. Is it
1: I don't maybe they change it over the years, but I know the one that opened for me is when Indiana Jones like falls down from the ceiling uh and is held I on think by his so. whip.
0: It's been a number of years, but I believe that's right. It's a really great show. Okay,
1: yeah. I just remember that. They had to do it a couple of times when when I went. Maybe they were practicing or whatever, but yeah. Very good show.
0: Well, there's two things in this scene that once again further solidify how Indiana Jones is just a man. He is doing his best here. And when the uh, big Nazis wants to fight him... Indiana Jones just is so tired. He just like puts up his fist and almost like this mock fighting uh, style. And (laughs) he just is like, okay, I guess I'll have to fight you this time. I can't rely on my gun like I did last time to take out the big guy. And then when Sala asks him how he's going to catch up with the truck, he says, I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go along. Right. I love that line because that just shows how... Human, he is how relatable he is, uh, how spontaneous it all is. How it's not just like, oh yeah, I've thought five moves ahead on how to defeat everyone. You know, it's like right. there are these masterminds.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I just love that scene when the guy comes out. And he goes and he's like trying to egg him on and stuff, and he's just like, okay, okay, you kind of trying to play it off as a joke, and then it turns out not to be a joke. And then yeah, he kind of cheats there at the very end when uh the when he kind of distracts him and the propeller. Uh, hits him and then he dies that way yeah such a creative scene and there's one shot that is really really cool it's when indy hops up onto the plane and is trying to get marion out of the cockpit that's locked and then you see the fire move from where it originated from and it's coming towards the plane and it's like a it's like in the background and it's almost kind of blurred out but it's so cool to see just that fire just move along as indy's trying to get her out it's really well done cinematography here really well done uh
0: yeah So pretty much from once they get into the Well of Souls, and then once they save the Ark of the Covenant during the chase scene, it's pretty much one long scene. But it's nicely done, and it does feel organic, uh, and it doesn't feel overlong or tired, even though it is long. But it's partitioned well. Uh, between the sequences because the well of souls is its own thing but then it smoothly transitions into how are we going to get out of here there's the plane fight scene and then that transitions to the vehicle chase scene and they're all partitioned by a little bit of dialogue or some type of dramatic sequence where they have to kind of escape where they do take a breather and it doesn't just cut straight into those because if you think about it, it does feel like one giant scene, but it flows really well together because of those partitions. Did you notice that as well?
1: Yeah, I did notice that there is like just a couple lines of dialogue and then we're back into it. Like it's Mm -hmm. they do. They it's pretty quick. And this chase scene is a lot of fun and it's really long too. This, like it for especially this kind of a scene it goes on for quite a long time i mean it's seven minutes but that for movie time that's a long action
0: scene it is but it is so exciting and i love how the movie just keeps topping itself yeah. with these action scenes and stunt work and you're like oh man that was so intense oh wait but this is here as well and it's just great fun where the hero is always in peril. He's getting the snot beat out of him. He's getting thrown through the front of a truck. Yeah. Has to go underneath the truck, climb back on top. He's getting thrown out of windows. He's hanging on for dear life. But this movie does take the time to uh, like... When there's this kind of cool thing that happens, uh, where the Nazi and Indiana who are vying for control of the truck, they both survive and they both like take a moment to like smile at each other, like yeah, yeah we did it or like that that was cool. And then they're just like wait,
1: get out of here.
0: And like Indiana pushes him out. Yeah, I'm, it's just those little things this movie does so well. Yeah,
1: and I love how it sets up till the guy who ends up shoot, or I, I guess it isn't the guy who shoots him, but there is a guy that enters into the driver's seat and is like basically the one who. Almost single-handedly tops Indiana, but then he comes back. Uh, there's this in- it kind of builds up to him, his death scene, because uh, Indiana Jones is thrown to the front of the truck, and then he climbs underneath it and is dragged behind it, and then gets back onto the truck and then throws him out and then runs over him. And you know, kind of the same thing happens yeah. with him where we thought what was going to happen with Indiana is that he hangs onto the front grill, and as it kind of just slowly bends and he's being pulled downwards, and we're afraid he's going to hit the wheel. Indy makes it out of it, but then this guy does and he gets squashed and, and it's actually kind of funny as his flames are flying up in the air when he when the back wheels run over him. Yeah, it's such a creative scene. Such like it's funny it's, it's kind of funny because it just kind of it almost looks like your typical chase scene, but the way that they execute it is very well done where where it makes it so exciting and so enjoyable because they have People are just kind of flying everywhere and so much stunt work is done. So much imp- very impressive stunt work is done. It makes this movie so enjoyable.
0: I will say, I feel like this scene is kind of what starts off almost this feeling of tag here until pretty much the climactic sequence where the Indiana's in possession of the arc. Oh wait, it's the Nazis. No wait, He gets it back. Then the Nazis get it back. Did that ever feel a little old to you at all, where in such quick succession, they're both getting it back from each other so fast and they have to, uh, I don't know, what do you think? There's not much of a moment of rest. We do see Marion and Indy rest on the boat, but it's just uh, almost a little bit too much, especially when the Nazi sub came and I'm like, oh my gosh, really? They found them and they're getting it back now? And then Indiana goes on the island and he's like I got a bazooka. I want it back. Right. <laughs> and
1: so... Right. It, it's interesting though because it basically is one man against however many Nazis are going after this thing. Mm-hmm. So at least on that note it makes a little bit of sense. But yeah, this does like to go back and forth a lot. Just really in throughout the entire movie, uh it goes back and forth between who know who has who is in possession of the ark. Um, it didn't bother me too much, I, but now that you bring it up, I do notice it. Um, but it's not, I don't think it's a terribly big deal.
0: Yeah. I do think we could have maybe done without one, uh, one aspect of it and then maybe gotten to the climax just a little quicker Yeah. instead of going back and forth so much. I feel it's not that big of a deal, but I do feel like there is a little too much time spent on going back and forth between stealing it back. And that's why I said it kind of felt like tag. And
1: I, and I uh, feel like one, I guess one other criticism was Marion's character because she is very important in the beginning, but then she kind of slowly becomes a plot device here towards the end. Yeah. Um, especially when, especially like their last scene when they have her captured and they're walking through the desert. Fun fact, by the way, Star Wars filmed here, uh, with the okay. Jawas, with the Jawas chasing R two D two, apparently.
0: Oh yeah, I can see it.
1: Yep. Anyways, uh, at this point, it, it kind of just feels like, why is Marion still here? Why isn't you know she safe somewhere? She kind of feels like this plot device at this point. She does have her moments earlier in the movie where she is very important, but especially here, it just kind of is like, uh, I wish she had more to do.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. You nailed it. She doesn't really have anything to do. Here at the end of the movie, whereas she was vital in the beginning because she held the medallion and without the medallion, nobody's getting the arc. But she does kind of become this damsel in distress that really is just a tag along with Indy and that pretty much takes place when she's thrown down into the well of souls, I would say. And yeah, she is just kind of this plot device. I will say though, I am glad she does stick it out to the end because it's nice to see the two of them went through all of this together. They both had to close their eyes when the angels of death come. And I do think that kind of bonds them more together in their relationship. But I definitely agree with you. She is just kind of like, And honestly, I kind of forgot about her Uh, when I was writing my plot summary. I was like, wait a minute. I was... Marion's there at the end. I completely forgot that the Nazis took her back too, which was a little silly how Captain Katanga says, leave the girl, we'll basically sell her as a slave or something? Yeah, something like that. And... The Nazi
1: is like, you savage. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of funny, though, because Belloc is the one who's like, no, I wonder, you know. Yeah. That <laughs> does is kind create... of create, But still.
0: Yeah. And that just goes to even further show you Belloc and Indy are rivals, even when it comes to the same girl, even though Belloc has no relationship to her at all or connection, whereas Indy does. But clearly, Belloc doesn't want Indy to have it. So if he can't have her, you know, it's just one of those things. Right. Uh right. I always thought the name Captain Katanga was cool.
1: Yeah. I wonder if he'll ever, I, I wonder if, I would the one to know his story because that is such a cool name. Captain Katanga.
0: I, he always plays everything so cool. He's just so smooth. Except I do find it funny when the Nazis are like, you're in no position to ask for anything. And then Katanga just like puts one hand on his hip and just makes this like real pouty face. Where yeah. <laughs> it's just, I don't know if you noticed that. or Yeah. Not.
1: I think one other criticism we could probably give, but this is, is, I would say, almost nitpicking at this point. Uh, There are a lot of characters that are introduced and then are only there for the scene. Katanga's one of them where he's kind of just there just for this one scene. Yeah. Doesn't really do too much. I was a little
0: disappointed about that.
1: Um, But, like I said, kind of a nitpick at that point. Uh, For a movie like this, it's almost required to do things.
0: Well, I'll also say I feel like the character, the Nazi tote, is fairly pointless except to serve as a creepy, uh, just kind of a slimy background villain. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's he does have the burned-in thing on his hand, which works nice for the first act, does kind of play into the second act. He basically does nothing. They hype him up a lot in this movie as this... Big Nazi torturer. They bring him in. Um, I don't remember his name. Now, the main Nazi in uh, Egypt. He's like, Oh, I've got somebody perfect to torture her. And we see him when he does the hangar scene with Marion in the tent. That really never pays off. You think he's going to try and do something to torture Marion to extract right. some information from her, but it just cuts straight to the next morning. Uh, so, yeah, and ultimately, he just. Follows them into the desert in the end. I don't know why. He right. Just, uh, it's very funny to watch how he... Uh, when Indiana comes up with the bazooka and he's like, I'm going to blow it to smithereens. Tote doesn't give a care. He just goes and sits down to in the shade yeah. and like, wipes his brow. <laughs> and he's like, him again? Yeah. You all deal with it. I am taking a break. But yeah, I almost feel like he has less here to do than Marion.
1: Yeah, I do agree. He... I think... I mean, I think he's more of a... Representation of the Nazis, just in general. Uh, sure. He di- I think it's either him or Belloc. I think it actually is Belloc. But they had this line where they say, "Wouldn't you want to open it in front of your Führer?" Which would be funny because if they did that, <laughs> then over would do it be over. But oh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But that aside, yeah, Tote isn't given terribly much to do. Really, his biggest moment is when we find out that the burn on his hand was what gave way to them crafting a replica of the head. Uh, Other than that, he kind of just is there as more of a representation. And I wish I wish he had a bit more to do in this movie. It kind of just, he's kind of walking around. I'm glad that they didn't like heavily rely on him to be the main bad guy or the main force of uh, the main antagonist because it would have been a bit too cartoony at that point. But once again, yeah, I do wish that it would have given him a little bit more to do here in the story.
0: And I think the reason they don't give Marion, Sala, and Tote very much to do in this movie is because they probably don't want to sacrifice the pacing just for more character development of these mostly side characters, which I can completely understand. This movie yeah. is under two hours long, and I think it has probably a, a perfect pace. There's really never a slow moment or a dull moment. But I do think uh, there could have been a nice scene of... Uh, Especially when Marion is supposedly about to be tortured by Tote, and we could have seen him kind of taunting her or intensifying the situation, and then Sala and maybe some of his people could have broken in to save her and kind of stop Tote, and then they could have said, uh, "Okay, where's the Ark?" That would have had to do some rewriting because Sala does go down in the the what is it called, the Well of Souls. Well, I I think the Well of Souls is
1: just where the map is at. I think the Ark is somewhere different. Oh. Oh, I just call it the Chamber. I I don't know the actual name for it.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was called the Well of Souls this whole time. Yeah. You would
1: think that the one that gets the name is where the Ark is at. No.
0: (laughs) Ah. But I I mean, it's probably a good thing because that would have definitely slowed down the pacing. Yeah. But – Anyways, we get to the end pretty much here. I don't know why they're on this island. They don't explain why it has any significance, do they? They mention
1: that they're gonna open it just to see what its potential is. Uh, they don't want to. They were wanting to bring it back to Germany, but then no, their plan was never to bring it back to Germany. Their plan was just to open it just to see what its true power can be uh, before they actually bring it back um well so that's what i thought they did
0: is. want to send it i thought they did want to send it to germany because when the plane didn't work they said i thought they said drive it to cairo and then fly it to berlin so yeah they might have but i think it's a little muddy here yeah, where a little bit. their intentions i know are. there's
1: a line but i i can't remember what exactly they say so yeah
0: well anyways i'm just disappointed we don't get to see indiana use the bazooka because that's really all I... Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> that's what this whole movie's been building up to. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> so, I gotta say, I felt teased when he's got this awesome bazooka, <laughs> and then he doesn't get to use it.
1: Although it is uh, worth mentioning that Indy is willing to go so far with the, his love for archaeology to not have it opened into order to be respected, that he's just willing to blow it up. I mean, he doesn't do it, and we don't know if his... If his motions were to actually pull the trigger but it almost feels like that's something that he would do because earlier on when he when he could have freed marion he didn't because he knew for archaeology and for logic's sake it would be a bad idea
0: yeah and i think that's exactly it is because it's still this artifact and the archaeologist in him won't let him destroy this object Just whatever may come, it's out of his hands, but it would just completely go against his ethics as an archaeologist to destroy an artifact just so somebody else couldn't have it. And we see that he makes the right choice because this one especially is supernatural. It's way beyond his control anyway. So if he probably tried to destroy it, then it might have had bad consequences for him. So I do like that he doesn't destroy it and this is when we get to the scene where it was shut off for me as a kid ah i was watching it and i was like uh yeah we better shut it off now this gets way too gruesome so i never saw the end of this movie for i don't know probably until i was like 17 years old or something until i finally watched it for the first time and and watched it all the way through
1: yeah this yeah this is among many others, a very notable scene uh, for what it's about to do, for many different aspects that go into making a movie and just the scene all, all in and of itself. When I watched this scene as a kid I was probably around I would assume 16 when I first watched this movie. This scene blew me away. I w- it blew my mind when I watched this scene uh, because of what they were, not not just what they were able to do, but just how intense it was with everything. And still today, I'm just like, this this is a pretty good scene.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And thankfully, thankfully it's not dragged out forever because I could definitely see other filmmakers taking this climax and, again, creating another giant action piece. And that would have been one too many at this point. So they do the right move of... Uh, it's very suspenseful, but it happens very quickly, and I, I do appreciate that. I do find it's funny how Belloc is dressed as like this ancient Israelite high priest. Like, yeah, what is that gonna do for him? Yeah, what is that gonna do for him? <laughs> I don't think.
1: It's- <laughs> we know for a fact. or well, we know from records of the Bible, which is definitely where this is kind of based off of, that those who have opened the Ark. Don't exactly live to tell about it. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. even so, if you touch it, right. you would die.
1: Right. Yeah. So much of touching it and then opening it is an even worse deal if you can even get that far. Uh, yeah. It's, it, it is kind of cool from a special effects standpoint to see the three main bad guys just kind of whatever happens to them because Belloc explodes. And I, we mentioned that at the very beginning That they would have, they didn't originally have the fire in front of him, but they did that for ratings' sake. But the most impressive, in my mind, is the melting of Tote's face, and also the one that kind of sticks in my mind forever because it's really freaky.
0: Oh yeah, I I completely agree. I think, in a way, living in 2018, reviewing this in 2018. It is over the top in such a way that it is kind of funny today, but I'm sure in 81 it was just so gory and horrifying. And yeah, I was definitely surprised they didn't have to tone this scene down to avoid an R rating. Yeah. It's definitely frightening, but it is crazy. Uh, there's faces melting off. yeah, uh, The juice is being sucked out of people's heads exploding. All the Nazis get blown yeah. through by these very freaky angels of death death that look uh very wonderful at first and then they have these very horrifying faces. So it's definitely a great climax to the movie.
1: Oh yeah. Great climax, very notable. Just a couple of fun facts uh for how they did the melting of the face and stuff with the with the Nazi general, I think he's a general, uh basically I think his head was kind of like a balloon and then they just sucked the air out of it. And so that way his face just mm. kinda of squishes inwards. And then, yes. well, with Belloc, they just blew him up. Uh, but with Tote, is the most interesting because they had, like... They made a face out of clay, and they had, like... Or maybe it was wax. And they had, like, layers of wax, and they just lit, like, a really hot flame right in front of his face and watched it melt. Uh, that's how we get that wow. scene of him, like, rotating, and his cool. face just kind of burning off, and his eyes, like, popping down from the sockets. It's so cool to see that, that kind of practical work because it looks so freaky from both 1981 and 2018 standpoint, because it is so practical, but at the same time, yeah, it is over the top, but it kind of fits this movie because this movie is just slightly over the top and kind of builds to this moment. Anyways, I think it works and it does a really marvelous job at making a pretty impactful ending, uh, for one of, as accounted by many, one of the best movies
0: of all time. It definitely deserved the Academy Award that it got. Yeah, yes it did. Well, and I think it's a a pretty nice end to the movie here. Uh, We see the Ark of the Covenant get sucked up into the sky. And uh, that's a mystery even today uh, that this movie does a fun job kind of solving for us. Uh, Nobody truly knows here in real life what happened to the Ark of the Covenant or the Ten Commandments. Um, I was reading some apocryphal biblical literature uh, the other day that some christians do regard as canon to scripture some don't but it did kind of seem to give a little bit of an answer to where the ark of the covenant might have gone actually i "I found that fascinating yeah how it was like a stashed away in a cave and um everybody just forgot basically how to find it again right it just kind of disappeared that way that i was like oh my gosh i've never read this before so very interesting i believe it's in the beginning of second maccabees anyways so back to the movie i love when uh indy finds out there's no way they're going to um no wait now i'm confused yeah so is the ark sucked up into the sky the lid is is it in the crate the lid is oh okay
1: the lid is sucked up and then slams back on top of the ark
0: oh okay so the ark so they do recover it it doesn't go up into heaven or anything no yeah
1: they recover it and they store it away
0: gotcha okay well yeah that makes sense because indy realizes they're not going to be able to show it and the government agents are like we've got people working on it and he says who top men yeah just real serious.
1: Yeah. In the Lego version uh, of this game at the very end, when you see the crate being put into the giant warehouse, the Lego, oh, yes. the guy who put the crate awake walks out and like looks around and like gets confused as where he's at and <laughs> forgets where to go. It's actually pretty
0: funny. Oh, that's great. That would be very funny. Yeah. And I think there's a really touching moment here. of uh, Dialogue between Marion and Indy when... He's like, they don't know what they've got there. And she says, but I know what I've got here. And I Mm -hmm. really like to see how their relationship is reconciled. She was this swarthy, hard woman living up in Nepal. And now she is back in the United States. She's dressed up. She's much more ladylike now. Uh, I think it's a nice character arc for her. Uh, One thing I did want to ask you, though, is did you notice that in in certain scenes, like the top third of the screen was blurry?
1: No, I did not notice
0: that. Ugh. We'll go back and watch it and just look at the top of the screen because they're using some kind of odd focus on the lens there to just kind of focus on the characters and what what's below them. But the top of the screen gets blurry when it does that. And I don't understand that, so I wasn't sure if you knew anything about that or not.
1: Hmm. Can, can't say that I do. Interesting. I did not notice that.
0: And, of course, the crate is stowed away and the massive storage facility with lots of government top secrets, which makes you wonder what else could be hiding in there. And we'll have to wait nearly 30 years to find out. Exactly. Ah, <sighs> What a movie. So, <laughs> Al- <laughs> Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh boy.
1: Uh, good movie. This is just one of those that I've just grown up with. This is a movie that I have... That's I can't remember the I can't remember when I saw it, but I know it was around sixteen ish when I saw it for the first time, and it's just been kind with me, kind of with me since then. And I've rewatched it multiple times, like I said, probably up towards the double digits, because it is just that much fun. It is interesting for me to say because I'm not usually the one into these kinds of movies, but this is one that I've kind of grown up with. This is one that that ending that blew my mind when I was a kid uh, still to this day holds true, even when I watch it as an adult amidst some criticism this is a very competent film and this is one of the american classics for good reason because this is very it was very influential it was this is the kind of this is the time when american films sort of become american film as it is today uh where it's moving past the golden age and into different ways of expressing and having fun with films and they did a really good job but this is something that of course only spielberg could have done um anyways fantastic score one of my favorite themes of all time being the ark of the covenant theme which only comes back briefly in the last crusade and briefly in uh kingdom of the crystal skull but that being said ah i love this movie i don't know why i don't own it on blu-ray but i'm gonna have to go buy it now uh 10 out of 10 have you not seen it that's the biggest question for me
0: Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the greatest films ever made. It is definitely, honestly it's probably the greatest adventure film ever made. Harrison Ford is iconic in his role of Indiana Jones, and this may be my favorite performance from Ford. I honestly think I might like his performance as Indiana Jones better than his performance as Han Solo. Spielberg Crafts Yeah, I'm I'm dead serious about that. (laughs) Spielberg Crafts well the reason is i just think uh, he's just i don't know i just feel more connected with indiana jones than i do with han solo who is kind of more aloof right spielberg crafts dynamic sets with exhilarating action to create a truly wonderful adventure this film is so much fun and one i return to often there are a few nitpicks I have with it, including just a bit of hokey dialogue and silly scenes, but they're minimal. Overall, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a superb, incredible adventure that deserves to be taken again and again. I'm giving Raiders of the Lost Ark a nine out of ten with a strong recommend. Well, what a movie! Anything else? <laughs> <laughs> Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this really fun ride for our first installment in our Indiana Jones retrospective series. We kicked it off with a strong film, and I'm really hoping the sequels can live up to this one, at least provide the same level of fun and adventure that just really came along with this movie. It's like going on an adventure ride right there in your own home. You feel so connected with these characters with the sets and that's what really brings you into it. I feel with a great story and a great adventure. So I I'm looking forward to revisiting temple of doom. I only saw it once. I'm going to save my thoughts on what I first thought of it when I saw it to begin with. I'll save that for next week and we'll see. Well, I guess it won't be next week. Will it?
1: No, next week is Halloween uh, eight. We'll be together for that one.
0: Well. <laughs> Okay, we'll be coming back with Halloween 8 next week. Yeah, (laughs) Not up to caliber, I would say, with the Indiana Jones. It's still going to be fun in its own respect, but in a different way. But like I said, I'm interested to revisit Temple of Doom. And Alan, you will be kind of sitting down to watch it all the way through for the first time, right?
1: Yep, I've seen, like I said, pieces, but this is the one that I've seen the least of. I don't remember. I don't remember very much of what I saw, anyways, except for what I played in the Lego games, which has also been quite a while. So yeah, I'll be. This is pretty much a newbie for me. I've never, never seen this
0: one. And we will be on similar levels. Like I said, I did sit through it all the way once, just probably like a year and a half ago, or two years ago, or something. But I don't remember very much about it. I'm very interested to see how this sequel lives up to this just true American classic dynamic incredible Raiders of the Lost Ark but thank you once again for joining us on this kickoff to the retrospective series we're very excited about this series so make sure to share it with your friends so we can all join in on the discussion and the excitement comment below your thoughts on Raiders of the Lost Ark Uh, if there's anything that we miss discussing we'd love to discuss that with you in the forums either on YouTube or Podbean or itunes or even on the website you can comment on all of those places and discuss the movie with us we've got a bunch of great more content coming your way over on the youtube channel so make sure to definitely subscribe over there because i try to do uh like weekend reviews of brand new releases here we do more so retrospectives i also have been doing some video game reviews that uh, i've been having fun with and i am I've got a few few videos up my sleeve that I'm not going to give away just yet, but I think they'll be pretty fun that you all will enjoy. So thank you, Alan, once again for joining me on uh, the kickoff to our Indiana Jones retrospective series. I'm so glad we're doing it. I'm so excited. And listeners, we will catch you next time.